Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I speak with Mike Morse, a high-profile attorney known for his entertaining TV ads and his impressive wins on behalf of injury clients. Mike is the author of Fireproof, a five-step model to take your law firm from unpredictable to wildly profitable. Mike talks about how he went from being a true solo to becoming a household name and running a hugely successful law firm. Mike shares some of his secrets for building what he calls a fireproof law firm. Mike Morris, welcome to the Litigation War Room podcast. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you, Mike. You and I haven't met before in person, but I feel like I know you. Um, Like most people in the metro Detroit area, I feel like I know you personally from your ads. As people in this area know, you're a very well-known personal injury attorney. Um, You've got these wonderful ads, Super Bowl ads, but ads that, that play at various times. And also, of course, billboards. Just the other day, after we had scheduled this uh, podcast, I was driving up Woodward Avenue, right where it crosses 8 Mile, and there's a little bridge you go over, and there's something about the bridge and the angle. There's nothing around. The only thing that you see when you're coming over that bridge is, is your face. What feels like the largest billboard I've ever seen, it's, it's basically your face, your head and shoulders smiling down uh, on us. So that, that's a great ad, and that's just, you know, I know one, one piece of the puzzle. Yeah, that, they call that a vertacular it is, I think, the largest billboard in Michigan, and I think it's the most expensive billboard in Michigan. So there, <laughs> no there you have it. It gets it gets a ton of impressions, a ton of views, and I've been on it, I think, five, six years now. Okay, yeah. And it's not just the, the size of the billboard. In, in that spot, there's something about how it's positioned. When you're driving, you don't see anything else but that billboard. Well, then it means it's a perfect billboard. It's doing its job. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today. I want to talk about your book. Fireproof. I uh, also want to talk about the Jesus Moreno case a little bit. But before we jump into those things, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your practice and your law firm? Sure. I've been practicing 30 years and right all, you know, obviously right here in Michigan. I went to school in the University of Detroit School of Law. I've been here ever since. I worked for a small firm for a few years and then I hung my own shingle in 1995. Uh, for the first 12 years, I was a true solo doing everything you could imagine. The hiring, the firing, the finding the clients, the signing up the clients, the trying the cases, writing checks, shopping for coffee and paper and filling the stamp machine and everything a solo does. I managed to hire about 20 employees and I couldn't do any more. And I knew that there was more people who needed help and I knew that I wanted to grow So I started treating my law firm like a true business right around 2007, I hired my first coach and then my firm kind of exploded. We had a fire in 2008 in my building, hence one of the reasons my book is called Fireproof. So from then on, I kind of treated it more like a business. I came up with systems and processes and I worked with a coach. And then for the last 13 years, I've been kind of writing a playbook to protect my law firm from things like fires and things like COVID and things like tornadoes and power outages. And believe it or not, it's it's worked. So my my COO, John Nakazo, and I wrote this book, came out last June. We, we I just got notified today that we're still on the bestseller list uh, for Amazon. 
selling thousands and thousands of copies. I gave a speech in front of, I think, 800 trial lawyers last week in Miami, and everybody you know, was buying the book, reading the book. And it was it's just this really strange and flattering thing because I'm still a lawyer. I'm still running my law firm of 150 people. We came up with this playbook, Max, and, and we went from about 30, 40 people to 150 people. We went from about 17 million in gross settlements to about 160 million. And we, I kind of attribute it all to what's in the book about just, you know, treating the business of a law firm like a true business and other people who actually aren't even lawyers are reading this book because, you know, we go through some general business principles um, that are helpful. And so it's been a wild ride. I didn't think I was going to be an author and a speaker and on great podcasts like yours talking about my firm and the book and my practice, but it's been a really fun year. Yeah, that's great. That's really exciting. And I've read the book. I love the book. I would commend it to any attorney trying to build a law firm or or build a law practice. There's a lot of practical insights and practical wisdom in that book. And I look forward to kind of digging into some of those details. It's interesting you said that um, for a time you had a solo practice and you said you had about 20 employees. And I think a lot of attorneys would say, well, gee, if he had 20 people working for him, wasn't he doing pretty well already? But it sounds like obviously your firm really exploded after that. Right. So solos might think that that means one person. I was a solo, you know, it was just my firm. I didn't have any partners. I still don't really have any partners, but it, it, it was like I was doing everything. And so while, of course, I delegated certain tasks, I wasn't delegating enough and I was still in charge of everything. And then one day my, my, the coach that I had said, you need to have a, uh, you, you, we need to do an org chart for you. And I said, what's an org chart? And he said, well, we, everybody has to report to somebody and everybody's got to be in charge of something. And I said, oh, that's interesting thinking. So we wrote it all down on paper and overnight I got immediate relief. And I realized that I was a visionary in my law firm and I shouldn't be doing all of the integrating stuff that we lay out in detail in the book. Um, I needed a department head for my lawyers and my paralegals and my secretaries. And people stood, stepped up and said, I'll do that. Overnight, I had 50% less responsibilities and direct reports. And, and it freed me up to build what I built, which is the largest injury firm in Michigan. But only because I started understanding these concepts. I don't even know maybe what a true solo is these days. Yeah, that's fantastic. One of the most striking parts of your book is early on, you tell a story of two fires that you experienced that sounded like they had a lot to do with the explosive growth your your practice and your firm subsequently experienced. One was a, a literal fire and one was what you might call a figurative fire. Can you um, tell our listeners about those? Well, yeah, in 2008, I, my, literally my building on, on Southfield Road right here in Detroit had a three alarm fire at three in the morning. And luckily, because we were had some systems, we were one of the first law firms in the country that were truly paperless. We were able to, you know, pivot really, really quickly. And then about three years later, 2011, the guy that sent me all of my auto accident cases that built my firm suddenly in middle of the afternoon decided he wasn't going to send me anymore. At that point, I had about 40 employees. And so I, I call that a fire. It was a firing. I've been fired from a job, my first legal job. I mean, I, I, you know, lots of fires that we talk about in the book and they're all catastrophes. They're all, they're all the same, just like COVID or a tornado. I mean, it's, it's the same type of thing. And I don't think most law firms in this country are ready to deal with that kind of stuff. I think 
I hope that most people don't deal with it, but I think most people deal with some kind of fire in their career. And there's so many different types of fires. And I just think that they they need to have their ducks in a row and their processes in place. And then there's just no fear. Then you're operating a lot less stress and a lot less worry. And if something comes up and you have your systems in place, it just kind of rolls off your shoulders. And that's that's what happened to me. Your book came out right in the middle of the COVID crisis. I assume that was not by design. I assume you started conceiving of and writing the book before that, because it's a very well-timed book in that regard. I think you're right. I, I, I wrote it about a year before that. It came out June of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. And it could have been called COVID proof. It truly could have. But the title was picked before, the artwork was picked before. But it absolutely applies to what we're all dealing with now. And my firm, I think, has handled the the pandemic better than most. We didn't miss a beat. We didn't take the PPP money. We didn't stop hiring. We didn't stop growing. We didn't stop processing cases. And I don't think everybody can say that. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, I've got to ask you about your ads. Again, in the Detroit area, everybody knows your name. Everybody knows your face. You have these charming ads. The persona you protect is is firm. You convey confidence, but there's also a light touch, uh, a bit of a self-deprecating um, aspect to them. Your, your, your mother is probably a bigger celebrity than you are. Um, she appears in many of those ads. She is. She can't go anywhere without getting recognized. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Can you tell us a little about how those uh, ads came about? Yeah. Well, when that guy fired me and stopped sending me cases, I immediately went into, okay, what are we going to do? And we decided to compete on TV. This is 2011. I looked uh, at my competitors' ads, which I wasn't a student of. I looked around the country, and I thought that the legal community had boring, terrible, vanilla ads. And I said, I can't do that. Uh, I get why they're all the same. I get what a pack mentality means. I get that, you know, it's easy and it's easy for me to say, hey, that guy over there who's spending all this money, his ad suck, but he's rich and he's got a nice firm and he drives a nice car and he's in Florida all the time golfing. I'm going to run the same type of crappy ads and uh, see what happens. But I decided I couldn't do that. I, I, I didn't like that concept. I believe that's where most lawyers' brains go. What I did was I took a piece of paper out, and I talk about this in chapter four, Cherry Garcia versus Vanilla, and I wanted to be a, a memorable flavor. I didn't want to be vanilla. I wanted to be memorable. So I wrote down the attributes that my, my competitors had, and I on the other side of the piece of paper, I wrote the opposite. They come off as bullies right? Well, we, we fight the bullies. So we have a commercial fighting bullies. Uh, they come off as greedy. Well, we give back 30,000 backpacks stuffed with supplies to the people who need it here in Detroit and on and on and on. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're standoffish and, and people tell me that I'm approachable. I do an ad about that or they're serious and we're funny and self-deprecating. You get the idea, Max. So for me, it worked. The opposite, we call it the fireproof method. It worked. I get thousands of emails a year thanking me for my ads, telling me they rewatch them, they pause them, they shush people. I would bet you a lot of money that my competitors couldn't say the same thing. Nobody's rewinding their ads and saving their ads and shushing them for their ads. It's just not. Mine are funny, mine are memorable, mine are branding, mine are you know in your face. And my mom's in them and my dog's in them and one of them's got my girlfriend's in them. And it's just, it's just a fun, way more fun way to advertise. 
right? And I think of, yeah, so many of these ads are boring. So many of these ads, um, maybe boring's not the word that I would use, but are just so aggressive. I, I lived and practiced in Texas for a number of years, and I think of some of the ads I saw there, things like the the Texas Hammer, which, um, you know, I, I think the gentleman that runs those ads is very successful and he's doing something right, but the ads are really in your face. Um, and he's branded himself as the hammer. <laughs> and now his son's is the, the junior hammer. Um, I hear good things about uh, Jim Adler. Jim Adler, I haven't that's met right. him in person yet. But listen, those ads are different and they're making the phone ring and they're unique and they're semi-fun. Okay, that's kind of a fireproof way to go at it. But you know what you know what I'm talking about in our town. I mean, how bad these ads are. <laughs> yeah. Well, your ads are are a lot of fun and and I'm glad they're working for you. And you know, Max, if any of your listeners want to I all my ads are on my YouTube channel. Uh Mike Morse law firm on YouTube, subscribe. And when new ads come up or new episodes of my podcast come up, we put them right there. And we have almost 20,000 followers on that page. And it's people like seeing the ads. I'm happy to share them. That's amazing. You've got followers that want to watch your advertisements. Go figure. You're doing something right. On the litigation war room, one thing we like to do is to zoom in a little bit on a case of particular significance. And I wanted to talk to you at least briefly about the uh, Jesus Moreno case. Can you tell us just a little bit about that case, about the plaintiff in the case and what you were able to do for him? Yeah, that was a big case. In fact, there's a Super Bowl ad. We made a 60-second Super Bowl ad that's on my YouTube channel if anybody's interested to see what he looks like and see a little bit about his case. Jesus uh, was a 30-year-old right-hand dominant graphic artist, sweetest guy you'll ever meet. He was on a motorcycle, full gear, full helmet, light turned yellow, then red. He made a left-hand turn in front of a city bus, a Detroit city bus, that ran him over and took off his dominant hand, degloved it, took it off, just took it off, cracked his skull in 50, 60 places, threw the helmet. Uh, he almost died, obviously. Did not die. He had suffered a major traumatic brain injury. He eventually had his full right hand and half his arm amputated, and we were able to get him a lot of money. But that's part of it. I mean, he has great prosthetics because of, of the work we did. Um, he was a triathlete uh, before his crash. He's able to, he's back into doing triathlons. I have right here in my office that you can see. I don't know. I know your listeners are listening, but it's up there in the corner that I'm pointing to. I see to it. You. I see it. And, um, you know, this man is the sweetest. There's commercials about the fact that he ran a triathlon and I came in second place and he handed me his medal. And it was like, you know, it was very emotional. I remember him giving it to me at a restaurant in Detroit and I started crying and it was like, tears are coming on my face. Like this is the most, the sweetest man who didn't let this take him down. And um, he found happiness. He found a wife, a nurse that took care of him. Uh, I was at the wedding last summer. It was a beautiful, beautiful affair. She's a wonderful uh, person, Anna. And it's one of these cases I'll never forget. He's he's a true friend. Uh, we text often, and you know it changed my life. It changed just by having a friend like this. And and commercial says you know we look for those type of cases that matter. And his case worked really really hard. And I was on the doorsteps to try the case uh, a few years ago. And on Halloween we went to the court and they offered us a dollar amount that we could not turn down and risk in front of a jury. That was one of my questions was, I knew the case had settled and I knew that it was, I believe, the, the largest settlement of that year in Michigan. How close were you to trial? This was just before the case was tried? I was ready to pull a jury. I was ready. I was personally trying it. 
him and I had a connection that I, I felt like I had to be the trial attorney. And I try less and less cases. They, they settle cases with our firm. And, and this was, I, I was ready to go. And um, they offered a number that was going to change his life. And it has changed his life. And, uh, you know, we did, my team here at the firm did a really good job of uncovering some really, really bad facts. For example, you know, the bus driver had a history of posting live Facebook videos while driving a city bus that we had evidence of. And, and, you know, who's to say that she wasn't doing that at the time of this crash. So I was not afraid of this case, but you know, I, you just never know what a jury is going to do. And, and again, they came up to such a, a level that, you know, it made it, it made it fairly easy to accept. That's great. And, you know, obviously money can't, um, you know, restore the life that Mr. Moreno had before. But but what difference did the the uh, settlement you're able to achieve make for your client? He was able to buy a house. He was able to find work. He can't do a graphic artist with one hand. Um, he was able, we were able to get him multiple uh, prosthetics, one for water, one for riding his bike, one for everything in between. He's able to not worry about money and, and worry about his rehab. And, you know, he had, he has a brain injury. And so for all the things that he needs money for, he doesn't have to worry again for the rest of his life, which made me happy. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I do want to, while I have you talk about your book, Fireproof, we did talk about a little bit, but I'd like to dig a little deeper. What prompted you to write Fireproof in the first place? So it was actually my girlfriend who suggested it a few years ago. And, you know, I was doing some lecturing around the country and I like teaching and I taught at U of D law school for a few years. And she goes, why don't you just write a book? Just write down all the stuff that you're talking about. And, you know, I, I toyed with writing a book 10 years ago about all the things that I learned from working in the restaurant business as a waiter for 10 years, I put myself through high school, or through college and law school. And in high school, I'm waiting tables and I learned so many things and, and I haven't written that book. So I asked my COO, John, if he would do this with me. And because he's more of the numbers guy and the data guy and the nuts and bolts guy who's running the law firm for me while I'm trying cases and signing up cases and training my lawyers and mentoring my lawyers and meeting with clients on a daily basis. So he said, sure. And we wrote it. It was a really interesting process. It was harder than I thought it would be. Lots of reflection you know, I wasn't a guy that stopped and smelled the roses. I, if you would ask me, you know, two years ago, what year did this happen and how many employees did you have at this time and how much revenue, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. But going back and putting it all in perspective and, and in a timeline was interesting and fun. And okay, fire happened. How many employees did I have? All right. He fired us in 2011. How many employees do we have? What was our revenue? What is it now? Oh, it's nine times greater now. And then just kind of stepping back and looking at my life, right? I mean, who does, not many people do that. Stop and look at the success and look at the trajectory of what happened and then trying to assign reasons for it happening. What do you attribute this to? And the book helped me kind of put it all in perspective. So that was really interesting for my personal life and my business life. And now that I'm lecturing around the country and, and, and going on book tours and being on podcasts like yours, it's, it's just a nice way to look back and, and just reflect and be able to draw parallels as to, oh, this happened because I did this. People say to me all the time, you know, 
you have one thing to tell us. What's the secret sauce? What is this and that? And there really isn't one thing to tell. But, you know, we put it down to five chapters. You know, the, the title is uh, a five-step model to take your law firm from unpredictable to wildly profitable. We have now something unanticipated, Max, when we wrote the book. Since June, we have signed up 24 law firms who we are coaching. Wasn't planned. Wasn't something I ever dreamed of doing. It's kind of being, but we're getting our hands dirty with these firms and we're getting in there and we are step-by-step taking them through the fireproof method. And it's been fun and wonderful. And I've met a lot of friends across this country. I don't have a firm in Michigan, of course, but I got 24 firms in 24 states. And that's really fascinating, learning from them and coaching them and taking them to the next level, uh, making less mistakes than I made. So that's kind of come out of this book. So John and I are spending some time doing that. So you never know where it's going to take you. That's right. Now, one of the things you talk about in your book, and I think you mentioned it earlier, was running a law firm like you run a business. What does that mean to you? Well, the way I think about it is, you know, lawyers are really good uh, planners for a case. You know, big case comes into your office and uh, you don't just toss it to somebody and say, hey, go do some good work on that. You come up with a full plan. Who's going to handle the case? Who's going to run lead? How are we? What's the discovery plan? What do we need to do? Who do we need to depose? What do we need to ask for? Do we need experts? And on and on and on, right? I mean, that's what a good lawyer does. I've done it a thousand, two thousand times, ten thousand times in my career. But what is the lawyer's biggest case? The biggest thing in their life is their law firm. And what I'm seeing is I don't see the same preparation in running a law firm as I do from running their biggest case. So it's kind of an analogy, obviously, that, you know, spend at least the amount of time running your law firm that you do on your biggest case. And most people, when I say that, they get it. They're like, oh, that makes sense. I should probably spend some time planning like I do on a case for growth, for my law firm, for the future for these law changes, for whatever it is. So, you know, when we go in and coach these firms, we really teach them about the org charts that I mentioned or about what the metrics they should be following or to build out, a we call it a jumbotron, which is a big scorecard, a big data point so they can see their numbers. And I can't tell you how many people, I have friends who come to me and say, Michael, I need help with marketing and advertising. And I say, okay, well, tell me what's going on. I said, you know, how long have things been going downhill? Oh, I don't even know. Well, if you had to guess, oh, probably two, three years. And I say, you're calling me now? If they were watching their numbers, they would know that stuff has been going down and they would have called me three years ago rather than waking up one morning and saying, why do I only have 20 cases where I used to have a thousand cases or a hundred cases, whatever. So the data, the data, the jumbotron is kind of like your smoke detector, right? It goes off when it's the first sign of smoke and you could run to the fire and put it out with a cup of water as opposed to waiting two years and having a three-alarm fire like I did and having to put it out with with tankers. Right, right. And if I can stop you right here, I mean, I love the concept of the legal jumbotron. What is the legal jumbotron? Well, you, you've been to sporting events, right, Max? Mm-hmm. And you're looking up at these big jumbotrons and they have all these beautiful numbers on it and the time and the downs and the score. And why do they have those numbers? Well, they have the numbers because they're trying to win the game. 
And you can't win the game without the right players on the field, without knowing what calls to make. And, you know, do you need to run down the clock? Do you need two, three points? You need six points? What do you need? And for a law firm, nobody's got a jumbotron in their law firm. Well, they do now because I've been talking about this for so long. But we have a jumbotron that we look at every single day that tells us the yards and the distance and the things that we need to do to win the game. And so we're looking at how many cases we're signing up and how much money's coming in week to week and who's doing what in my firm and how, how many lawsuits am I filing in a week and, and on and on and on. And, and I have goals, right? Every one of my lawyers has a goal. I have 40 lawyers. They all have a goal. It's, it's, and it's green, yellow, or red every week. And so I can see the trends. Well, if a lawyer's got three or four reds in a week, I dive in. Why is that? Why are they red? If they're green, I don't dive in. They're, they're hitting their goals or doing good. So it's just like, like I said, a smoke detector. If somebody's not doing so good, I can dive in three, four weeks later as opposed to three, four years later. If my signups are down three, four weeks in a row, I can dive in and say, why? If other problems are happening, I'm alerted earlier. I can make the right plays, change players, go for three, go for seven, and end up winning the game. And we win, we win the game. Most years, we, you know, we wouldn't have grown to be the largest most successful law firm in Michigan if we weren't watching our numbers. And most people aren't. Your book is a great manual for uh, how to run a law firm like you run a business. What do you say to those, uh, the naysayers who say, well, the practice of law is a profession and doesn't lend itself to, you know, sure, everybody wants to make a good living, but the idea of running like a business is somehow in tension with um, being a, a professional. I heard a rumor that, you know, a few years ago, one of my competitors said, I'm no longer a lawyer, I'm a businessman. Obviously, it's false because I'm a lawyer and I always will be a lawyer, but I laugh. And I, I think that's a badge of honor. And it's the reason why so many lawyers are unhappy, small firms, not making enough money uh, because they don't teach us in law school how to run a business. And I don't fault them. I don't force my views on them. I completely disagree that a law firm is just a professional firm and not a business. A law firm is a business. I will stake everything I have on that fact. And I agree with you that a lot of lawyers don't feel that way. And it's a mistake. I'm sorry for them. They can keep doing it the way they're doing it. And they don't they don't have to listen to me or they don't have to buy my book. They don't have to, to take one of my pieces of advice to heart. But if they did, my guess is they'd be a lot happier. Because I did it both ways. The first five, 12 years, I didn't have a coach. I didn't look at my numbers. I didn't run it like a business. And I kept out of 20 people. And I made a decent living, but I knew I could do more. I wanted to do more. I wanted to help more people. I wanted to make more money. I wanted more freedom. I wanted to change the world. And I did. By treating my firm like a business, I was able to scale and grow and delegate and work on things that I only love to do and that I'm really, really good at as opposed to all that other crap that most lawyers are running around doing that they don't want to be doing, but they're doing it because they don't know how to get out of the, get out of it. And so, you know, we're, we're just trying to teach lawyers that there's another way. Now, your book is really geared towards law firm owners. Do the lessons in your book translate to other lawyers who are parts of larger law firms? How does it translate to building a law practice in another setting? I think so. I've had really good feedback from junior lawyers and non-partners um, I've had really good feedback from non-lawyers, uh, people who, MBAs, people who run other businesses. 
In fact, two of our clients are not. One's a software company and one's a transportation company. So we're not just coaching law firms with this stuff. So I'm a thousand percent convinced that these are universal principles. I wrote it for lawyers because I'm a lawyer, but it could have been written as a general business book. But I love my profession. I love my fellow lawyers and I wanted to help them. Well, I've really appreciated your insights. Thank you for your time today. And Mike, I believe you have a podcast too. I do. I don't do a good job of uh, talking about it, Max. Um, It's called Open Mic. It's on all the platforms. We also have a very uh, robust YouTube version of it that has over 3 million downloads. Um, We have about 100, over 100 episodes, mostly focused these days on social justice. Um, We've done, I think, 10 interviews with 10 exonerees who spent 20, 30 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. We're talking to them. We're talking to other experts in the country about these types of cases. And it's kind of turned into a, you know, a mini passion of mine to expose all of these bad things that have happened to so many good people. Some people from Detroit, lots of people actually from Detroit, but also we are now branching out to other cities and, and states. As a lawyer, I was, I was almost embarrassed that I didn't realize some of this stuff was going on. And it's really, really heartbreaking. We, in fact, my firm took on a case recently of a, of a man in prison here in Michigan who, who got a really, really bad trial and had a terrible court-appointed lawyer, and we're trying to get him a new trial, a fair trial. And all of that is thanks to you know my podcast and, and learning about these types of cases. So I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And uh, as you know, it's hard work, but it's really gratifying, and I'm meeting some really nice people. So open mic on, on YouTube as well as Spotify and Apple and all the other ones. Good. Well, thank you again. Thank you for joining us. Um, Really enjoyed your book, and I would commend that to our listeners. And um, really appreciate your sharing your insights today on the litigation war room. This was fun, Max. I really appreciate you having me, and and it feels like we covered a lot of stuff, which a lot of times we don't get to do in these in these truncated shows, uh, like a podcast, you know, a shorter show. But this is this has been really great. Thank you. Thanks so much. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room and please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war rooms.